This morning we are going to be continuing our series in 1 Samuel, uh, the dawn of, yeah, number 1 Samuel, uh, dawn of a kingdom. We had a little break over Easter and now we're back. I'm going to be reading 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 6 to 15. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come. Let's go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, which is a vaguely impolite way of saying Philistines, the bad guys. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that's in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I'm with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, behold, we'll cross over to the men and we'll show ourselves to them. And if they say, wait until we come to you, then we'll stand still in our place and we won't go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up to them. For the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And imagine they came out from behind a rock. Hello, here we are. Maybe not. (laughs) And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of their holes where they've hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer. And said, Come up to us and we'll show you something. And you imagine they're winking at each other. Yeah, we can show them something. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, probably winking as well, come up after me, because the Lord has given them into our hands, into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. Now, you might know this story. It's fairly popular. I think the only reason it doesn't have quite as big a rep as maybe it should do is that uh, David and Goliath come so soon afterwards and maybe when they're putting together kids' Bibles, they go, well, we can't have loads from one Samuel. And so they they focus on the giant one. But uh, yeah, it's very very famous. You've probably read it as a kid or or maybe in your devotional time where you're, you're, you know, maybe we're working through the Old Testament and we've got to one Samuel and then you get to one Samuel 30. Oh, it's about animal sacrifices again. I thought we had this done in Leviticus. What's going on? And then, and then you, you stumble across uh, chapter 14. Ah, yes, adventure story. Great. Let's do that. We'll go for it. It's exciting. And so it probably sticks in the memory. But I think it's fascinating seeing this in the context, seeing this in the great sweep of this dawning kingdom. Because this does come right after the weird animal sacrifice bit. Saul's unlawful sacrifice, which <clears throat> I don't want to spend too much talking on because uh, much time because Mike spoke so excellently on it a few weeks ago, and if you haven't heard it, I implore you to go and check it out on the website. But the upshot 
is that Saul was told by Samuel, the prophet, Saul the king, God would have established your kingdom forever. Which is as much to say, your sons, your grandsons, and everyone afterwards would have been king forever. But because of his unlawful sacrifice and other things we'll look at in a bit, that's not going to happen. And with this rebuke ringing in our ears, the writer of 1 Samuel reintroduces us to Jonathan, who we've met before, actually, at the beginning of chapter 13. He seems to be some captain or general of the army. He's taken a thousand Israelites and won a battle against the Philistines, so he's a good guy, we know that. And it's only now that we find out that he's Saul's son. With a hint of dramatic irony, the writer goes, Owen, he's the heir. He's the heir apparent to the throne of Israel. And so it means everything that comes afterwards is seen through a a lens of, well, what if? And including the story I've just read, this brave, brilliant, God-fearing, faithful young man, he who'd make a great king is not going to be king. And as interesting as that is for a literary device, you can't help but wonder, how much does Jonathan know about this? Because it says that the the army has shrunk down to 600 men. There were 3,000. Saul took 2,000 to do not a lot. Uh, Jonathan took 1,000 to fight the Philistines. So maybe he lost some people there, but doesn't account for the fact they're down to 600. Maybe, maybe this is the worst kept secret in all of Israel. <gasps> Saul's messed up and Jonathan's not going to be king. Maybe people are deserting Saul. And then he comes, it says he's come to Gibeah, which is the edge of the battle. Um, so if we say that Gibeah's here, there's a huge valley, and then over here is Michmash. And we've got Israelites on that side, Philistines on that side. You don't need to know any more than that. But he's come to Gibeah. He's come to the edge of the battle. And maybe Jonathan's found out. I'm not going to be king. I'm not going to be king. I thought that's what God wanted for my life. I thought that was the whole purpose. I thought that's why Saul... And then, uh, I'm not going to be king. Or maybe he doesn't know. Maybe he doesn't know. In which case, he's probably quite excited that Saul's going to turn up. Because Saul's kingship actually comes with a healthy side-serving of deliverance against the Philistines. That's what God tells Samuel. He's like, you're going to know who the king of Israel is going to be. The sign will be that he will save Israel from the Philistines. That's what's promised. He then tells Saul this. And in case Saul's under any illusions as to that being the case, then then God affirms it. Chapter 10, verses 5 to 7. After that, Samuel, the prophet, says to Saul, you shall come to Gibeah Elohim, where there is a garrison of Philistines. And, as you enter the city, you'll meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. You'll be filled with God's Spirit, 
and you will prophesy with them and turn into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. You see these Philistines that are over there? I'm going to fill you with my presence, fill you with my power, so you can go and fight them. But he doesn't do it. He hasn't done it. That's in large part why actually the kingship has been taken away from him. So when he comes to, to Gibeah with John, uh, to, to meet up with Jonathan, maybe John, Jonathan's excited because he's thinking, yes, my dad's here. He's the one that's going to deliver us from the Philistines. That's his job. That's what was prophesied. That's the purpose of his whole life, his whole kingship. That's why he's here. Imagine his disappointment then when Saul, at the beginning of chapter 14, goes and sits under a pomegranate tree on the edge of the battle, not in it. Or that could be translated pomegranate cave. I mean, take your pick. It doesn't cover him in glory either way. Either he's resting under a tree or he's hiding in a cave. He is not saving them from the Philistines. So Jonathan either has just found out he's not going to be king or he's disappointed in his dad and maybe God as well. It's a confusing time. And what I want to know is how do you go from what is going on to taking on a garrison with just one other bloke? It wouldn't have been my first move. But I think there are three things that we can see in Jonathan that determine his behavior. The first one is that he knows God. We've seen before in the book of Samuel how uh, the, the writer contrasts those who say Lord, as in the name of God, and God, the existence of a deity. Jonathan, all the way through here, calls him Lord. He knows him personally. If we kept reading in 14, we'd see that, that Saul, who's now with the prophet Ahijah, who's descended from Eli, the failed prophet family, priestly family, they say God. They don't really know him. Jonathan knows him. But, but more than that, he knows stuff about him as well. We heard wonderfully in our worship, people know God, they know his sense of humor. They know his character. They know things about him. And it's possible to know to God like that. He knows that God saves. He knows that God saves. Nothing, he says, can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. He's going to save. If I know one thing about God, he is going to save. Maybe he is looking out at this diminished army and remembering the story of Gideon. We've gone down from 3,000 to 600. The story of Gideon goes that he had 32,000 men to fight the Midianites. And God says, oh, you know what, Gideon? If you win with that many, you'll probably just say you did it on your own. Let's cut it down. Let's cut it down. So, so that you know that the Lord saves. And he cuts it down to 10,000. And then he has another little thing, and he goes, oh, you know what? 
maybe, maybe it's still probably too many. You'd probably win a battle with 10,000 men. Let's cut it down to 300. And Gideon rightly panics. And, and God says to him, go into the camp with just your servant and I'll show you how I'm going to give them into your hands. So maybe Jonathan remembers that. Nothing can save him, uh, stop him from saving by many or by few. Let's just go with one man and go into the camp. We can also see that he knows God. He knows that he will save by his, on the face of it, rubbish sign finding. Okay, I mean, uh, we need a sign. Gideon did that as well. So, um, okay, uh, if we go there and we go, and they say, uh, come, come up to us, then we'll, we'll go up to them. And that will be the sign. Or they'll say, uh, stay where you are, and we'll do that. I remember being a similar age to, to Jonathan, probably, and praying this sort of prayer. You know, God, I'm going to ask this girl out. And if she says no, it's going to be a sign that I'm going to marry Britney Spears. <laughs> Do you know what? I wish that story wasn't true. <laughs> oh, God save me. Um, but the point is, Jonathan demonstrates his knowledge of God in this. I demonstrated my fear that I was going to be alone. My fear that God didn't have the best for me. That my fear that my life wasn't going to be worth anything. Jonathan doesn't do that. He knows God. The second thing he does is he considers his circumstance. At the end of chapter 13, there's a Fascinating anthropological look at the state of Israel at this time. Um, it's, it tells us that there was no blacksmith in all of Israel. There's no blacksmith. Which uh, The reason for this in the history of the world is because they are caught between the swing of the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. The fact of the matter is, uh, they had a, a, a local contract with another nation. Um, if they needed their sickles or their mattocks or any other sort of you know, farmware sharpening, they could go to the nearby uh, uh, country and say, oh, could you just you know, sharpen this for me? And they'd be charged a healthy price. I don't know if there were other prices available, but that's what they got. The problem is this extends to not just farmware, but weaponry. And the country that they had this contract with was the Philistines, who were smart enough to think, that oh, we're at war with them. Should we make them swords? I'm going to let some of you work out whether they should have done that or not. To me, another really cool story about me, I used to collect Monopoly sets. I had over 50. Um, I had... I know. Um, and I had one from the, during the war, the Second World War, and it, it came with a spinner. Uh, it had separated into one to six, and then one to six within that, so you knew what you rolled or spun in this case. The point was that the, on the spinner was written, sorry, there's no dice, but dice are made in occupied territory. So we've given you a spinner instead. And it's a little bit like that, except instead of it being some you know, thing you need for a pastime while the war's going on, it's the weapons you need for the war itself. 
This is a huge tactical blunder on the part of Israel. Let's go to war with the people that we need them to make swords for us. It says there are two swords and two spears in the whole of Israel. Two! One's in the hand of Saul, and one's in the hand of Jonathan. So he considers his circumstance. Maybe he remembers that prophecy to Saul. Do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. What's in my hand? A sword. And I'm actually the only one. I'm the only one with a sword. And so the last thing he does is he takes responsibility. He knows God. He knows that he's going to save. He realizes he's been gifted with something that no one else has. And he does something about it. And I've been there. I've been there in that confusing time. I felt like God is calling me to something. I knew what he wanted from my life. He'd spoken very clearly. And then things changed. And I didn't know what I was meant to be or do anymore. I didn't know what God wanted with my life. I didn't know my purpose. But I knew God. I considered my circumstance. I was newly married. I had a wife. God says, you love me, you love her. Like I love you. I suddenly had a job and non-Christian colleagues who needed to know about Jesus. I had a church that I loved. I still love. (laughs) Whom God had called me to serve. Sometimes I took responsibility. And sometimes I didn't. But the really good news is God loves my wife better than I do. My colleagues, salvation belongs to the Lord. And he is building his church. And we see that in this story because <laughs> this is my favorite bit. Here's the kicker, okay? There's an earthquake, which could be because of God, or it could just be because people are running around a lot. But either way, Saul notices. He finally looks across and goes, oh, there's a fight going on over there. First thing he does, God, give me a sign. Should I fight the Philistines? Have you given them into my hand? Of course he has, but he does that anyway. And so, but then uh, someone bright uh, does a little tot up and go, I wonder if it's us. Have we started this fight? Are they at war with anyone else? Does a little count up. <gasps> Jonathan's missing. Oh, it must be Jonathan who started the fight. And then Saul stops looking for signs and goes, all right, let's join the fight. Maybe maybe just paternal instinct. I don't know. But when they get there, all the people with Saul who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow. Verse 20, every Philistine sword was against his fellow and there was great confusion. There were two swords in the whole of Israel. 
One in the hands of a man who took responsibility. One in the hands of a man who did not. And then many, many more in the hands of God. Because God is bigger than anthropology. God knows about the movement from the bronze to the Iron Age. God gave the idea to the Greeks to make up, oh, should we work with iron? Seems better than bronze. And then he gave them the inspiration to move around the Mediterranean, get into Palestine, become the Philistines. He put them in the hands of other people in order that he could use them so that he could save Israel. Verse 23, the Lord saved Israel that day. So it doesn't matter (laughs) that Saul didn't do it. It doesn't matter that sometimes I don't take responsibility because the Lord will save and nothing will stop the Lord from saving by many or by few. Jonathan knows this. You might think that's really rough luck on Jonathan. He's, oh, that Lord saved. Jonathan got off his bum and went and fought the Philistines. He, he went and did it. So surely, you know, it must be that if I do my bit, if I take my responsibility, then God will take his responsibility. No, he's going to save anyway. That's who he is. So why bother? Because Jonathan knows this. Come. Let's go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. The rest of that thought, it may not be. It may not be. It may not be. When I told my non-Christian colleagues about Jesus, when I offered to pray for them, when I invited them to the carol service, did I know that they were going to get saved? Did I know that they were going to get healed? Did I know that they would meet the Holy Spirit? Of course, I cannot know that. I know that God will save. And I will do what my hand finds to do. For God is with me. Just because we don't know what God's going to do doesn't mean that we have to be inactive. The final thing is this. We so often, when we read these things, you know, it's great to identify with the story, but we divide ourselves up. Well, I'm like Jonathan. I've got a call. I've got a thing in my hand. I'm going to go and do it. I'm going I'm to go. Or we could think, oh, I, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm like the armor bearer. I, don't, I haven't really got anything in my hand to do, so I'm going to find a man that I go, well, you, I can see that you know God, and you're going to go and do something about it. And you've got a sword, so I'll follow you. I'm going to debunk something for you today. You are not one or the other. Every single one of you and me has something in their hand to do. God is with you. Jonathan ultimately submits to to David, the king who will come. He submits now to God. 
the armor bearer who says, I am with you, heart and soul. I can see you're a good guy. But whether he's a servant, a lieutenant in an army, he will have had people around him saying, you're with, you're with Jonathan, aren't you? How did you get there? How did you, how did he pick you? I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I imagine it was something like, I do what my hand finds to do. God is with me. And if we remember the story of Gideon, terrified, how on earth am I going to win this battle? God says, I've given them into your hands. Go to the camp. But if you're afraid... Take Pura, your servant. I've given them to you. I'm going to win. But I know you're going to be afraid. And he says to you this morning, I've put something in your hand. And here's the church. Here is each other. Amen.